Welcome to episode 24 of Outsiders. Outsiders is a podcast that features innovative women, queer culture, and conversation. My name is Julia Curtis Burns, and I'm your host. And today I'm joined by Maya Meredith. So, Maya, what do you do? Um, I work in public relations, and then I also have some, like, art projects going on on the side. First of all, she said, like, art projects. She has some awesome, awesome (laughs) art stuff going on, so we're going to talk all about that today. Where are we? We are in a a stairwell in the mid-Manhattan branch of the New York Public Library, because this is the best place we could come up with to meet them and be quiet. (laughs) So first we like scoped all the floors, but found out that because it is a library, you know, it's generally quiet. So the best, uh, the best option is is the staircase. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> so my, what is your job title right now? So my job title is account coordinator, which is pretty much like the lowest rung of a PR job. Okay. Um, I just started this job in January, and I was at a different PR firm for about a year before that, and my job title there was account executive, but there were, like, less levels there, mm. so it was, like, easier to be higher up. So at my new job, account executive is one above me, but it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> all good. Um, so tell us a little bit about what your work entails. Sure. As- person in PR so yeah most people don't public relations yeah most people don't actually know what public relations does so and they're confused about um, (laughs) the difference between PR and um, marketing Mm -hmm. so PR our job is to um, connect our clients with the media so like marketing is marketing is targeted at consumers Mm -hmm. Um, with PR we get to the consumers through the media so my job is basically to um pitch my clients out to media. So for example, something that I was doing today was um, I have a client who uh, is an oyster company that has like a bunch of restaurants in the Chesapeake Bay area mm. and they just opened a new restaurant and I um, I want the media to cover the new restaurant. So we came up with a, diff- a bunch of different cool things about the restaurant like different angles for stories and I pick out like a list of journalists that I think would be interested in covering it mm. for um, outlets like Bon Appetit, New York Times, um, First We Feast, Food Republic, all these different like food uh, magazines and like newspaper sections and blogs and then I like write to them and be like hey this restaurant just opens it does this like it's part of this trend like what do you think like would you want to do a story on it mm. and that's like the core of my job. So you're like a connector between whoever your client is, and then all of these media outlets. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And your company focuses on food. Yeah, so we do do, um, restaurant and hospitality PR. So my clients are restaurants and and a couple of hotels. And we also do some destinations. So, like, we work with, like, Visit Denmark, for example. Oh. So do you get to travel a lot? So, I mean, I just started, and I'm, like, pretty, like, down on the ladder, right? Don't, but don't but hype but, yourself up. That's awesome. No, but I um a bunch. Most of my clients are in the south. I just got a new client today who's in New York. Who I'm really okay. excited about. But all my other clients are in the south, and um, four of them are in New Orleans. Um, and so I'm hoping that at some point in the next year, I'll get to um, go down there and like meet the teams and get to know the New Orleans media better. Because yes, our is. firm is really um, focused on, like, building real relationships with media. So, like, at my last firm, it was kind of a lot of, like, spam-style emailing. We would mm. build these huge lists and just, like, blast out pitches. But at this firm, it's really – we do really targeted lists. 
like, so a lot of the time when I'm building a list, I am literally going to Bon Appetit, the website, and, like, scrolling through all their recent articles and trying to find one person who's the most likely Mm. to be interested in what I want them to cover. And so I do that, and then we also are encouraged to, like – to actually, like, meet with media since we're in New York. Everybody's here anyway. So, like, meet them for coffee, meet them for lunch, bring them to dinner at one of our restaurants, that kind of thing. And that way, um, since they have actual, like, real-life, like, in-person relationships with us, they're way more likely to, like, pay attention to our pitches and be interested in what we want them to cover. Mm. What makes a good pitch? Um, it's hard to say. Um, <laughs> I mean, first of all, you just have to be like a a good enough writer that like you're clear you're relatively like concise and you know no like spelling or grammar mistakes obviously I think that like um writing in a way that's really engaging in a way I like to use um questions a lot because I feel like that makes somebody keep reading Mm. one thing that I learned from my old firm that people like to do is like there's always an ask and a pitch like would you be interested in an interview would you be interested in um like covering this opening, something like that, and um, ending the pitch with that because then, like, they feel an impulse to answer the question and get back to you. So I – but, like, at my new firm, I move the question – I move the ask up from the bottom, like, a little bit. But, um, yeah, just trying – just really trying to write in a way, one, that the subject line of the email makes the person want to open it, and two, Mm. that, like, you hit the ground running and make them want to keep reading. That's the tricky part, like, because I have to do pitches all the time, too. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, what do you write in the subject line? So, cause, right, because we get so many emails like every single day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do you catch somebody's eye? So what are good subject lines that you've used? Um, I'm really insecure about my subject lines, actually. Can I, can I? But, but like I, one that you but really I think, well, like. Well, I think that there are like words that you can use that okay. make people interested. Like, if something is exclusive, put that up front. Um, if, um... Like, putting the ask out front, I think, is good, too. Like, if we want an interview, we'll put interview question mark and then the, like, the mm. subject line. Um, yeah, so I mean, being, really So you're varies. saying, like, being direct. Yeah. Oh, I also, like, I like to do this with my subject lines and my pitches. I like to do, like, alliteration and consonants because I feel like it's more fun to read that way when you have, um, like, words in a line that, like... Like, I only do it in pairs. Like, I won't do a whole sentence where everything <laughs> begins with S or something. But, like, sometimes yeah. I can get it so a sentence will have, like like three pairs of like alliteration and it just like it makes it like roll in a way that's like fun and I think that that's in like a kind of a weird like some little way to get somebody interested in what you're writing so like all s's words no, well I'm wrong not like well not all <laughs> but like maybe like in a sentence I'll use like two s words and like two m words like mm. right after the other I'm trying I can't think like. of like an example right now Sexy sauce makes muscles tasty. <laughs> yeah, yes, that was. I came up. You know, that was on the fly. <laughs> but like something like that. Yes. Cool. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. So, Maya, are you from New York City originally? No. So my family is from Massachusetts. Um, oh. We moved to Florida when I was in middle school, and I really wanted to go back up north for college. So I did that. So I ended up in New York for college, and I stayed here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you stayed here in college. You went to. Columbia. Columbia. Shout out to Columbia because that's where I grew up. I grew up on one time. Oh, wait. I shouldn't tell everybody where I grew up. <laughs> I was about to tell everybody my whole life story. Anyway, but I grew up in that neighborhood. So oh, that's cool. I love it. Um, like BNT's Pizzeria. Their pizza is so good. Right. And I don't know why nobody talks about that. That's right. And it's like low-key, not so expensive. It's mm-hmm. like you could get a big pizza pie for like, I have no idea, but... 
I mean, it's like it's it's like a good value for like the quality that you're getting. Cause it's it's not like I, dollar right. sliced pizza. It's like it's, real like, it's like mountains that, of cheese. It's like that crust with the bubble. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. deep. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, we get, well, Maya knows about food, so yeah. Like, my my um, since my firm is focused on restaurants, I mean, the way that I got the job was that I know a lot about food and so my my old firm we kind of did everything mm-hmm. like I had like a magazine two media companies um a popcorn machine like a kitchen electrics brand that made popcorn machines mm-hmm. and a, a doctor who was writing a diet book like those are my <laughs> clients nice um and so but I had had a couple of restaurants like for brief periods um so when I interviewed for this job I just really emphasized like I might not like. I've had a couple of food clients, but like more importantly, I know everything about them. Yeah, <laughs> so, like hire me. And food is awesome. So you cook? Yeah. So I cook a lot. Um, I kind of got into it in high school. Uh, I like took some cooking classes during the summer, and then um, in college, I didn't have any money, so I needed mm. to cook to live. Basically, mm. um, That's and right. my first summer that I spent in New York, I interned actually down the street from where we are right now at WW Norton and Company, which is on um, 45th and 40, yeah, 45th and 5th. And um, I, I was making minimum wage, so like eating was basically the only like luxury I could have. Like making really good mm. meals was the mm-hmm. only way that I could like. Yeah. Do something that was, like, exciting. Because, I mean, you could hook it up for pretty cheap, you know what I mean? Like, oh, definitely. What were your, some of your, for those of us, you know, who may be working minimum wage right now or building up our income, what are some things that you love to cook that were not super expensive but super tasty? Um. So, and I think I actually cook cheaper now than I did then because I eat less meat now. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But then I would do, like, I would get, so drums, chicken drumsticks and thighs are really cheap. The thing to know, like, if you don't know that much about food, is that, like, when you're buying meat, the less processed it is, the cheaper mm. it's going to be. So, like, think of a chicken. Like, if you buy a whole chicken by the pound, that's going to cost the least because they don't have to do anything to it other than, like, pluck it and give it to you. Well, right. And, like, all the, Getting it, getting it to be dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then, and that's so that's the cheapest by the pound. And then, like, um, if you get like a broken down ch- chicken, that's like the next step down. And then, like, a whole chicken leg is going to be cheap. And then, like, thighs and drumsticks are also really cheap. That's going to be like two bucks a pound. Or and then, something. if it has skin versus no skin, exactly. So if it has skin, yeah, as long as it's right. like a thighs or drumsticks with um, skin on and bone in are going to be like. Pretty much the cheapest thing you can do aside from, like, just cooking a whole chicken. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm big – so I was big into that. I would do, um, I would do like, baked chicken with, like, potatoes and onions and lemon. All of those things are super cheap yes. and they're good to – and garlic. Mm. Those are all, like, mega cheap and, like, you should just have them on hand anyway because you can make a lot of different things with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you, just, you literally just, like, drizzle it with olive oil and balsamic vinegar and, like, stick it in the oven and that's it. And, and like, I'm salt salivating. <laughs> so um, – I used to do that. Um, and, like, what about now? Because you said you cook. Yeah, well, so I can talk about, like, what I'm – well, I try to do, like – I try to do batch cooking, but I'm a really picky eater, and I'm really big on, like, how food looks. So if the leftovers don't look good, I don't really want to eat them, which what? is, like, a problem. Yeah, it's really bad. What do you mean don't look good? Like, I mean, like, for – like – I, if, I try to, if I try to explain it, I'll just sound ridiculous. But, you know, there are some dishes that just look kind of gross and you don't. And if you didn't already know they tasted delicious, you wouldn't want to eat them. But, like, for me, even if I know it tastes delicious, if it looks kind of gross, I still don't want to eat it. Yeah. So I have to be really careful about the kind of batch cooking that I do. Um, so for this week, I did. 
That wasn't us. <laughs> okay. Remember, we're in a, sta- a public stairwell. Public stairwell. Okay. Anyway, so um, what I did this week was um, I did uh, like a Korean bibimbap bowl where you have like, it's usually like hot rice um, and like some kind of protein maybe and then like a bunch of different like vegetables cooked in different ways. So I had like rice, um, stir fried beef, um, stir fried onions, mushrooms, and spinach. And um, I made enough of this to have, like, for dinner on Sunday and then for lunch on um, on Monday and Tuesday. Mm. And, like, that didn't cost that much. I already had the rice. I already had the onions. Spinach was probably, like, the most expensive thing I had to buy when I did that. Yeah, spinach can be pretty pricey. Yeah, especially because it cooks down to, like, basically nothing. So I know. Like, you can get, like, this huge... What is it called? A bushel? I have no idea. Uh, like a, a bunch, bunch yeah. of spinach and then you put it in the pot and it's like, hello? Yeah. It's like yeah. not it's like the size of your hand. I know. Um, so I did that and then um, I made, so yesterday, so on Monday night when I was, I think, oh, on Monday night for dinner, I just had a baked potato with um, roasted cauliflower and um, Parmesan on it. Mm. And that, because I didn't feel like eating meat that day and that is like super duper yummy, um, especially with like a bunch of butter and salt and pepper on it. Mm-hmm. And then I mar- so you like butter? Oh yeah, butter is everything. Yeah, and and I marinated yeah, some right. chicken and yogurt that mm-hmm. night. And then last night I made fried chicken and I made like it was like thighs and drumsticks, right? So it's cheap. Yeah. And flour already had that. Yogurt already had that. And then because when you get like plain yogurt, it's super cheap. It's like three dollars for like a big thing of it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, fried that and then um, I made like biscuits with like sour cream and scallions in it and then so that's my that's my lunch for the next couple days at work and I had that for dinner last night so like trying to make meals that like last a few days but not so many days that I get bored of it but also the ingredients aren't that expensive Mm -hmm. so one thing I like to talk about is terms that we identify with Mm -hmm. and Maya are there any terms that you claim or that you feel suit you best is this like sexuality wise or like it's race however wise you or like identify? <laughs> I am not going to. I'm leaving it open ended. Okay, well, um, I'm bi, oh. um, so that's a thing. Um, I'm I'm black. Um, my mom is Haitian, but uh, my parents were like divorced when I was a kid, so I was mostly raised by my dad, and that's like a whole other like mess because my dad was adopted by white people so like oh this is so interesting yeah so like when you're raised by if you are raised by someone who was raised by white people it's pretty similar to being raised by white people yeah yeah so, so um, your dad is black but he was raised by a white family yeah exactly okay. and his he also he has four siblings and one of them is also adopted and he's native american but then the rest of the family is white and so, like, queerness in my family has never really been a big issue because, um, like, my Native American uncle is gay and um, one of my aunts is is lesbian. So, like, and I knew this from when I was really yeah. little. So, like, yeah, it's not, like, my family, my, my dad's, like, family is so ridiculously liberal. Sometimes I'll literally just, like, screenshot things that they say on Facebook <laughs> and, like, send it to my friends with, like, hashtag Meredith family because they're, like, bleeding heart, like, borderline communist, like, hella liberal. So, like, nobody cares. Like, one of my um, cousins came out as genderqueer at Thanksgiving a few years ago and everybody was like, okay, mm. you're wearing a skirt, that's chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm. That's interesting. Yeah, that's cool that yeah. your family's so open, you know, yeah, it, not every family is like that yeah and so it's kind of a weird situation for me because like I haven't come out to my family and it's not like 
it's the, it's the opposite of the normal reason. Like, it's not because it would be a big deal, but because, like, it wouldn't. So I don't feel like I need to tell So it's them. not even, like, it's not an issue. Yeah, I mean, okay, like, oh, here's a good story. So, um... The, story time! So, well, it's really short, but... The, <laughs> so, in my junior year of college, um, I was trying to figure out where I was going to live um, my senior year. And, uh, most of my friends were... Or, like, a lot of my friends were in a, a year below me, so, like, I couldn't, like get like a senior dorm with them or whatever and a lot of my friends were um, gonna be living in the queer special interest house mm-hmm. which is like a brownstone so I um, so I didn't know where I was gonna live and I hadn't really like figured out the whole queer thing yet because um, I was dating my high school sweetheart from like sophomore year of high school until like about a year after I graduated college which was when I was like oh I'm bi okay <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so um I, I just decided I decided to you, like allies are allowed to live in the queer special interest house and all my friends were gonna live there so I just applied to live there anyway. Okay. So I t- so I was like out to dinner with my dad during Christmas break and I told him that um, I was gonna that I was like applying to live in, in Q House and he was like oh that sounds great that's so cool and this in the same conversation like I was wearing really. Um, I was wearing dark blue nail polish while I was talking to him, and he was like, "Why are you wearing black nail polish?" So like, <laughs> so like, my dad cared more about the fact that I was potentially wearing black nail polish than about like the fact that I was going to live in a queer special interest house. So yeah. like, that's that's kind of the the thing that's, in my family. Like, nobody gives a shit. They're, they're like, okay, but more <laughs> attention is paid to maybe your style. Well, or... for th- that was probably because I had like a pagan Wiccan phase when I was in middle school, and my dad was like really unhappy about that because, like I said, since he was raised, so he was raised by white people, and my that that side of the family is pretty much all atheist. Oh. And so one of the ways that my dad, like, claimed his black identity was by going to church. So Like Baptist church? Not even Baptist. At least I don't think so. I don't know what denomination my church was in Massachusetts, but Mm -hmm. um, that was, like, a big deal. Like, he's not, like, super, super religious. Like, we weren't even really that regular about going to church by the time I was in middle school. But, like, he was really, like, unhappy that I turned out atheist. So, um, and, like, not too excited by my, like, pagan, Wiccan, like, middle school witch girl phase either. Oh, wow. So, So how long was that happening? Probably, like, two years. I think, like, I got, one, one of my friends in Massachusetts was getting into it when I was in sixth grade. And then when I moved to Florida, I kind of just kept reading about it and I got interested in it. And then, but by the time I was in high school, I was like almost totally atheist. So, oh, wow. yeah. And then like after my freshman year, I was like there. So <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I think it's really interesting and telling that your family is so open. It's allowed <laughs> you to sort of explore different parts of yourself at an earlier age than like, you know, some people, it's not until they get to college that they're like, oh, wait, because because yeah. you have more freedom to sort of yeah. express yourself. Definitely. And- I mean, I also, I did women's studies in college, so, like, I was already, oh, you like, were- going in, I don't know, not exactly going in, like, that direction, but more of just, like, kind of thinking about, like, questions of sex, really, were, like, important to me. Mm. So one thing I'm really excited about is to hear more about your zine because you've done some amazing work in the movement of, you know, all of the things like Black Lives Matter, all of these or- organizations that are coming together to fight against all the injustices that have been happening to 
black people. Yeah. Let's keep it real. So could you tell us, A, what is a zine? And B, what is your zine? Sure. So a zine is like a miniature magazine. Um, They're very like do-it-yourself, DIY. They came, like they come out of the Riot Girl era of like feminism to like the 90s and like women wanting to be able to write about like whatever they wanted to write about and like disseminate it easily. So mm. you would like, you could like do it by hand. You could type it out or whatever. You would print it out and like Xerox it and like staple it up yourself and just like leave it places things like that um now um there's like a zine library at barnard the women's college associated with columbia um that like collects all of those oh well, not all of them but like many of them and like a lot of artists put out zines a lot of like comic like cartoonists they'll do like diary zines or stuff like that there's a lot of really cool zines you can find out in the world if you go to art fairs and stuff so zines are basically an, about an issue that you like to talk about, and then it's a fast way to disseminate that specific, yeah, to- I mean, or maybe topic that yeah, you like to discuss, it's not really necessarily like, issue. Definitely. It's really like a topic. It can be about like anything that interests you, pretty much. It can be about yourself. It can be about food. It can be about feminism. It can be about race. Um, I know of one that's about like trans masculinity. Like, it can really be about anything. And is this zine culture something that has been dominated by women? Definitely, or? yeah. I awesome. Mean, I think that now, like, men men do do it, but I would just thinking of, like, the zines that I've bought and the people that I've seen at zine fairs and art fairs that are selling zines, it's definitely still mostly women, and it was really originated by women, for sure. Yes, it was. <laughs> so what is your zine called? What inspired it? Tell us about it. Sure. So um, it's called Wade in the Water. And um, the title is from, um, uh, so in like November of 2014, um, like a few days after Darren Wilson was not indicted for the murder of Mike Brown, um, he, I was talking to one of my friends on Facebook and I was saying like, like, I'm really sad about this. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to go back to normal. Like, and I don't really want to go back to, like, normal about this. Like, I feel like I will have lost something if I stop grieving Mm. about this. And, like, I really hope that this is something that, like, people continue to care about and it's not just, like, a flash in the pan, um, like, internet outrage cycle. Like, we get really upset that this black kid died and nobody cared and then we, like, get over it. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, when Mike Brown was shot in August, like, it was a big deal for, like, a few weeks and then it died down. But then I think that because there was Mike Brown and then, like, so Darren Wilson wasn't indicted, and then um, Daniel Pantaleo, the uh, police officer in Staten Island that strangled Eric Garner, mm. um, also wasn't indicted, like, in quick succession, and that, like, really ticked people off, and that kept that really helped sustain things. So I was talking to my friend, and I was like, yeah, do you think do you think this is just going to be, like, a moment? So, um, so my friend said, uh, I hope that this is a watershed moment in black uh, culture and consciousness, and so that was where the title came from. So Wade in the Water, for people that don't know, is also um, the name of, like, uh, a spiritual that's, like, about, like, how to, how to like, run away from a slave plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so that's where, that's where the name comes from. And so the zine itself is um, I went and – well, so, like, my life changed a lot after, uh, after the indictment because, I like, like I said, I didn't want to stop grieving. I wanted to keep caring about it. And I got involved with doing um, kind of, like, my own kind of activism. Not I didn't do a lot of actions. Like, I didn't do a lot of protests, but I worked with a group called Artists Against Police Violence, and we created an online gallery of, um, of art about police brutality that, like – 
that could be used um, by, like, protesters. Mm. So, um, so my life changed a lot, and I wanted to see how other people's lives changed, too. So I wanted to um, interview people a, about a year after, like, all the unrest started. So, like, in November 2015, um, about, like, what they thought about the movement and, like, if it had changed their lives or not and, like, that kind of thing. And put, like, a book together, and that's, that's the scene. Hmm. So it's a series of interviews with people? Yeah, so the way that it's um, formatted is I interviewed everybody and I kind of, like, broke down what they talked about. And then, it, so in, so the, the Z, instead of, like, having the complete interviews or having, like, a section for each person, instead it's what everybody said woven in together oh, okay. in, like, different topics. So, like, they talk about um, how they first became race conscious. So that's a lot of people talking about, like... This, injustices that they experienced at school Mm -hmm. um or like I made sure to get men to tell me about the talk that they got from their parents and how they dealt with that I had a pair of twins who grew up in the south so like their parents talking to them about like how they had to dress and be around white people and that Mm. kind of thing um there's people talking I asked people like what they saw the goals of the movement as being and everybody gave pretty different answers for the most part which is interesting and I asked them like um how they thought like if they thought the movement was like doing well or like how it could improve and like what they thought they should do in that Mm. way so it covers a lot of different things um and so so yeah so I put that out about I wanted it to be like about a year to the day of the non-indictment but that was the week of Thanksgiving and I just knew that wasn't going to happen so I put it out in December 2015 like the first week of December so how what was the how long was it how long did it take from start (sighs) to finish two months that's not bad. That's well, awesome. Uh, it was very, it was pretty grueling. I mean, two months is like way That's too little time to do that. Really, it's really I, fast. I spoke to thirteen people, and like, so the way that I kind of got inspired to do the project was that um, I did women's studies at Columbia, and um, the oral Columbia has an oral history department, and the oral history department did an oral history of the women's studies department. So after I graduated, I got an email being like, hey, we're doing this oral history. Can we have somebody come and interview you? And so I based those the interviews that I did for the zine, like the process that I went through, I learned how to do that by being interviewed for another oral history Mm. project. So, um, so I kind of, but so after I did the zine, I like emailed the guy that had interviewed me for the Women's Studies Oral History Project and was like, hey, I did this thing um, and I want to keep doing it, but I don't know anything about funding. Can we like get coffee? And he happened to live in my neighborhood. So we just like met up and he That's was, the universe. When, when he found out that I had done the whole thing in two months, he was like, uh, what? <laughs> like this, is, this would usually take like a lot longer like than Like years. Like, well, like, yeah, for the amount of interviews that I did and like the transcriptions and stuff, like usually it would take like, a, like a, at least a few months to yeah. do it. But like I, I had an idea in September that I wanted to do this. I, and then, um, and then in October, I finally sat down and was like, it's okay. I sat down and was like, yes, I'm going to do this. And like, I have to figure it out. I have to figure out the timeline today because if I want to put this out, like within about a year of the non-indictment, I have like eight weeks. Yeah. And then I mapped out like what needed to be completed at each step. So, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm really into oral history. I think it's it's something that's really important to, especially for black culture, because, Definitely. you know, a lot of things haven't been written down. Exactly. It's, like, such a big part of how, at least in my family, our family history has been preserved. Exactly, yeah. So, so that was that was part of why I thought it was like an appropriate thing to do for this project too because of so much of black culture is passed down orally and definitely like 
when I was working on the project, um, a lot of my friends were asking me, like, isn't this stressful? Like, how do you feel about it? Like, after I did each interview, and I was like, actually, I feel really good. It's really exciting to get all these different people's point of views because, like, like I was saying, I mean, like, my family's white, most of it, and my, um, like, I've lived in white places, you know, Massachusetts and Florida, like, pretty white. And so I didn't really, like, have that many black friends and that kind of thing. And so getting to talk to, like, people from, like, all kinds of different experiences of blackness um, was, like, really nourishing for me and I think likely to be really nourishing for other people. So that's part of the purpose of the project is to kind of, like, give a picture back to us. But then part of it is also, like, I feel like a lot of people don't want to be convinced about, like, black lives... Black Lives Matter issues because they, like, they feel like they're being attacked. Mm. And so I feel like just putting people's experience, like, no edit, like, there's no editing. Like, I put an, an, like, I put an editor's note in the beginning just to, like, contextualize it, but then the rest of the book is just what people said in these interviews. And, And like, you didn't edit anything. I mean, I I had to edit a little bit because people speak in fragments. Like, if you tried to type out this interview, you would see that it's, like, kind of a mess when we talk. But, like, for the (laughs) most, like, I tried really hard to preserve the way people speak. Like, if you're speaking in, like, like, Ebonics, like, I'm leaving it in there. Yeah. That kind of thing. And making sure that it, it, it's exactly, like, how people feel and just handing you that. And I had a lot of, like, my white friends come to me and be like, this has been, like, I actually had one of my white friends did one of the transcriptions of the interviews for me, and she was like, I feel so uncomfortable because, like, I learned so much about what's going on just by, from this one person yeah. talking about their own experiences. Like, there's so much that I'm not even aware of. And so that's that's exactly what the zine is supposed to do to help people learn that kind of thing. And I think that that is so important because... Often it's like we have to like justify why is it important to record something that is about black lives, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what you did is awesome because you're just putting out experiences. Exactly. You yeah. Know? And think, you take this and you read this. Yeah, I think um, definitely like one of the oh, one of the mo- moving parts of the of this zine was um, people just talking about like their emotional mm-hmm. reactions, and I started off that section. One person just said, like, I'm enraged all the time, 24-7. And yeah. I just left that as, yeah. like, his one quote and then other people talking about stuff. And, like, the fact that, like, this is something people are living through. And also, like, people talking about, like, multiple people talking about how, like, one woman was, like, put in lower-level reading and math groups when she was in elementary school, even though she was gifted. Mm. One person, um, like, one person got into a bunch of, like, advanced Mm-hmm. One one person got into um, a bunch of like advanced boarding schools, like off of her grades, and then had like the teachers treat her like she didn't deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. All this stuff, like this is what people are actually experiencing. Like, this is not a statistic. Like this is somebody telling their story, and I yeah, want people to wow. see that. Yeah, this is like real life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a lot of trouble like recording secretly, but we're not. You know, like we work it through it. Um, <laughs> So what are some of the things that you found most either interesting or maybe rewarding about this project? And what did you find to be challenging about it? Um, definitely, like, the most rewarding thing, like I said, it was just kind of getting to hear people's stories. Yeah. Um, something interesting. And the fact that... Uh, everybody really had a different take on it. Like, I got lucky enough that even though I only talked to about 13 people, like, and 
only a few of them were activists. Um, and mo- the ones that were activists, they weren't, like, again, they weren't, like, go out on the street and protest activists. They were, like, artists mm-hmm. that used their art for activism. And so um, I got, like, a pretty wide range of people who were, like, more chill and, like, less chill, mm-hmm. you know, and, like, more yeah. woke, less woke, that kind of thing. And I so- love that term. <laughs> woke. Yeah. Yes. So, mm-hmm. like, so, and the Again, I think it's just really important to show that we do have this range. You know, there's an um, there's an essay collection that I got a couple years ago um, called Black Cool, 1,000 Streams of Blackness. Oh, and I like that's, that. And that's what I always think of when I'm working on the zine is, like, I'm showing 1,000 streams of blackness. Like, the fact that, like, we're not a monolith. We don't all have the same opinion about these issues and, like, how and why. Like, one way that that comes out is that a lot of the people that I interviewed um, are, uh, their parents are immigrants mm. and, um, immigrant families, what I learned from this, I mean, I said that my mom is Haitian and she's an immigrant, but like, she never really did this with me. So I didn't know about it until I started talking to people mm-hmm. that like, like a lot of, um, African diasporic immigrants, like, like Caribbean immigrants and like African immigrants don't see themselves as black. Hmm. Um, they see themselves as like African or like Caribbean. And so they, they, they they think that they they and sometimes they have the same perspective about black people that like white people yeah. do that like it like it's like it's a pathological thing of like black americans are the problem and like we're black but we're from africa so like we have real values and that kind of thing so like and and but the kids are saying like no i mean we're all like implicated in this like we're all affected by this because like when somebody looks at me they can't tell them my parents are from africa you know so it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um so that was some that was another thing that came out that like i'm sure that I, I can't think of a single one of my white friends that would know about that if they didn't read the scene. Yeah, and that's so <laughs> deep because when I was in college, I experienced that a lot. Like there was, you know, you said we're not a monolith, right? There, there's this whole idea of the first thing that people said to me when I when I got to campus was, "Have you joined the black student group on mm-hmm. campus?" But like, there's within being black, there's so much in terms of identity that a lot of people, "Oh, I'm not black." But, I mean, it's – it's because black in America can be different from how yeah. someone who is, uh, I don't know, from a Haitian yeah. ancestral background can identify. Yeah, so it's, totally. I felt, but I found it really, like – I found it really hard mm-hmm. because I'm, like – I like the term black as opposed to African-American because I feel like it's <laughs> – Black kind of unites me with everyone who is around the diaspora. But what you're saying is a lot of people's parents said, oh, you're not black in that sense. So that's that's really interesting. I don't know. Um, But anyway. Yeah, so that's a lot of interesting things. Um, Definitely what was challenging was just like the time frame that I did it in and um, the, the, uh, how difficult it was. I did most of it. Like, I did most of the work myself. There were people that helped me, that they said they were going to help me more than they actually mm. did. And so um, that meant having to pick up a lot of slack. And I mean, like, you know, these, really interviews, these interviews, they're 30, to 30 minutes to an hour long, each yeah. one. I did 13. And it takes, when you do a transcription, the amount of time that it takes to type it up can be two to four times the amount of time that it mm-hmm. takes to actually listen to it. So, like... Let's say, like, the shortest amount of time that it could take to do all these transcriptions is, like, 
like 13 hours hour? well oh like God. total oh, total oh, 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 would yes. be like 13 hours it's the shortest amount of work that it would be and that was not the case because some of the interviews one of my interviews was like 70 minutes long and like most of them were not a half an hour most of them were closer to like 45 so, so you basically were not sleeping well people were helping me my boyfriend did a few of them or he like helped on a few of them I mentioned that I had a white friend that just didn't want it like complete one mm-hmm. for me so that helped but I did I was involved in or did by myself I think like I think I did seven by myself and then was involved in like a couple more mm. or something like that. So that was a lot. Um, so so how did you, uh, during that time or in general, how did I what? How do you maintain a uh, work-life balance or do you have one? Yeah, I mean, well, it's like, this is stuff that I care about. So mm. like, that it is my, it is the life part of the work-life balance. And I mean, my, my, the, this was when I was doing this, I was at my old job and it was really slow. I didn't have a lot of work most of the time. So, like, there were times when I just did transcriptions at work mm. because I didn't have anything else to do. Um, so that that definitely eased it a little bit. Um, but just being, like, I mean, definitely once I, like, finished it and I could just, like, go home and watch Netflix, it felt really weird. <laughs> um, it felt, like, not productive. And I've always, I've always been kind of like that. Like, Columbia has a, a one-month-long winter break, and by the end of winter break, I would be bored. Yeah. I would, like, want to go back to school. And so that's kind of, like, the attitude that I take with the zine. Like, and especially once I, like, get in the groove of it, like, sometimes, sometimes I get intimidated by how much work it's going to be, but then, like, once I actually, like, sit down and do it, it actually feels really good, and, like, I'd rather be doing that. Because you're into it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're passionate about yeah. it. That's awesome. So... One of the things I like to talk about on the podcast is what makes you innovative? Because <laughs> you are. You did a really big, exciting project. Well, first of all, where can folks get it? Oh, so... Or um, find it. Okay, so right now, the only place that it's available is the Barnard Zine Library, which is at... It's at Columbia. Um, like, that's, like, that's the only place you can get it right now. But the... Um, there's an activist art organization called Just Seeds, Just Seeds that um, that funded the printing of it, and they're selling it. Okay. Um. So if you go to, so it's not available there yet, but they like just got it into their warehouse recently, so it should be available probably in the next week. Okay. And um, it'll be, uh, it'll be like nine dollars, and you can buy it there at justseeds.org. And there's like a drop down there where you select like the category of product that you're getting if you just go to zines it should be pretty easy to find and then um i also just mailed it to um the uh feminist library on wheels yes and um so they will have it as well and i'm i'm gonna get in touch with a couple of zine distributors that do um that distribute zines by people of color but i need to like figure out how the pricing structure is going to work and if Just Seeds is going to be okay with that, since like, they would be competing. Mm-hmm. So like I might wait until they sell out of Just Seeds to distribute it to other people, but I don't know yet. But it'll definitely be available on JustSeeds.org for $9 sometime in the coming weeks. Which is a great price for an awesome project, so support. And I'll put all of Maya's information at the end of the notes. And there's a website for the zine and stuff, too. Yeah. So. Awesome. So what makes you <laughs> an innovative woman, Maya? Uh, <laughs> come on. Um, I mean, I think I'm thinking creatively about um, like ways that we can um, educate people about activist issues, um, and kind of not trying to stick to the normal like teach about it at school or like expect people to get involved or like write 
like editorial journalism about it, but instead trying to come up with a, an easy way for people to like com- like access it in a way that makes them feel like comfortable emotionally and like private. Mm. Yeah. And also, you know, but it, you know, it's also not only about educating people; it's about like giving our people something too that they can like that that's ours. Mm. But it's just honestly raw and authentically ours. Yeah. Yes. I yeah, not that. not not like edited very lightly, right? And not, not editorialized. Like I'm not I'm not situating the quotes in like my own story. I'm like mm-hmm. just letting people tell their stories, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Love it. So this is gonna get personal. So you don't have to answer if you don't want to, and I can edit it out. <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> um. So you identified primarily as bi, mm-hmm. not queer. Are those terms different for you? Are they synonymous? Could you talk a little oh, bit about I how mean, do you feel about that? I mean, I identify as queer. I just think that being saying that I'm bi is a more specific way to say that. Okay. I, I definitely still identify as queer, yeah. Okay. So but. you use both kind of like interchangeably or just to be more specific, you say bi? I mean, if I'm talking to a straight person, I would probably say <laughs> queer. If I'm talking to a queer person, I would okay. say bi. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Have you found... Because this is something I think about a lot. Have you found any sort of, like, what word can I use? Like, backlash or criticism from people who are in the queer community with identifying yourself as bisexual? Um, I'm lucky enough that I have a lot of bi friends, actually. Oh, okay. Um, my boyfriend is bi. <laughs> and, okay. um, and, well, my current boyfriend, this is not the same one that I was dating before, like, from high school. And um, uh, I have, like, I know a lot of other, like, um, lipstick femmes and, like, femme... Mm. Um, like femme bi women who like are going through the same issues of like authenticity and like mm. being able like invisibility like want like tell it exactly like literally during my first week at my new job there was a woman with an accent nail and I was like she queer or <laughs> and like, there's no way to ask right 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 <laughs> it's <gonna> work <laughs> I always talk about I always talk about the fact that I wish. You know, there were like subtle, like symbols. Well, the, the accent nail is supposed to be, but like too Wait, many straight people that? have that. What's the, what's the accent so nail? If you I don't had, even, see, so, look at me. I don't know anything about nails. So I didn't polish. know that. I didn't learn this until like I started having a lot of queer friends in college. But like, if you're, um, if you're, so when you paint your nails, if your ring finger is a different color than all your other fingers, that's known as femme flagging, and it's telling what? queer, it's telling queer women that you're queer. Oh my! Can you say that one more time? I this what? <laughs> Wait, what it's called? Or it's called femme flagging. So you wait. so you paint your so I when I paint my nails, I always make sure I have an accent nail. Like I paint my it's specifically your ring finger and it's a different color than your, on your left hand on both hands. Oh, okay. And if yeah, and if you paint if you do that, it's supposed to indicate that you're queer. But like so many because I was doing that before I, I knew it was a so thing. So hyped about this right well, now because no, I never, now I'm gonna be looking at not that I'm available to look at people, <laughs> but I'm going to be looking just to notice. Just to know, but, yeah. but no, but like so many. I mean, I was doing that before I knew it was a queer thing. Like my mom taught me to do that, like mm. when I was in elementary school. So like, really, I don't think it's a good indicator because plenty of straight women do it yeah. but it is like if, but if you're in like a queer space or something like for example the way like I, I like I said I had a lot of queer friends in college and if I rolled up to a party like with an accent nail I literally had a girl grab my hand and be like are you are you <laughs> and you're queer? like oh 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Um, I fun love fact. that. That's a cool fun fact. I did not know that. See, now I'm yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so I'm learning like, little things about queer culture, like <laughs> anything. And also, remember, you can write into the show if there are different topics like around queer culture that you like to talk about, or that you like to share, or fun facts. I love that. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. And it, um, you also mentioned invisibility. That's, like, a really big thing, yeah, especially I mean, with, like, lipstick femmes. Yeah, and, like, bi-invisibility and femme-invisibility yeah. is definitely, like, a thing. Um, and especially because I'm a, I'm a femme by woman who's dating a dude. So, yeah. like, it's, like, very low-key. And I think, you know... I, you know, you said that you were, you were wondering if, like, there's any kind of, like, prejudice from people in the queer community about that, and I think, you know, obviously there's definitely the whole, like, like, pick a side, like, you can't be both, which I think Mm. is ridiculous, but um, also, you know, some people feel, and I don't think that this is wrong, some people feel that, like, you know, if you're, you can fly under the radar so much more easily if you identify the way that I do, um, that, like, in, like, perhaps some people would argue that, like, you don't get the same queer experience as other people because you don't experience the, like, potential, like, the potential for, like, oppression and prejudice that you might otherwise, which I don't think is wrong, but isn't really fair. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, I have to be honest, like, we're going to have a real talk right now. <laughs> real talk <laughs> in the library. Well, after this person passes. No, like, to be honest, like, so I identify as, people know, gay, mm-hmm. but it's sometimes, like, it's not hard for me to understand bisexuality, mm-hmm. but it is hard for me to be open sometimes to dating women who identify as bisexual because, maybe this is my own insecurity, but part of me feels like it's sort of like a different experience, and I don't know if. I don't know. Like, I don't know if we identify the same way and if that is going to... I don't know what it is. Well, um, yeah, I know, like, one of my bi friends from college, I think, like, part of the reason that he and his girlfriend broke up was because she was, like, uncomfortable with Mm. him being bi. And I think that there, at least for, like, for some people, there's... I don't know if it's like this if you're, like, already queer, but I think for some straight people, there's definitely a sense of, like, how can I compete if you're into mm. two or more genders? Maybe, you know what? Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is for Yeah, me. I'm not saying that that's it for yeah. you, but that's one thing. I think also... But let me give you a way to think about it. Um, Please. Yes. My... So I mentioned my boyfriend's bi. He's also Indian, and I'm African-American. And... Um, so we both experience racism, but we experience racism in really different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think this is actually a particularly good example because, like, when you're Asian, like, you're ex- the kind of racism you experience is so different from the kind of racism that you experience when you're black. And, like, there are lots of points of – there are lots of points where it's the same. Like, once we went to a speakeasy and, like, the bouncer wouldn't let us in and we both, like, walked away. And, like, after we walked for a block in silence, I was like, do you ever get the feeling? And he was like, yep. And it was that, like, mm. were we rejected because we weren't dressed right or because there was actually a weight or because we're not white? Hmm. You know, so that's something that we both experience. But, like, you know, um, Asians, the I feel like the dominant narrative about Asians is, like, the model minority um, stereotype, which is still racism, but it is a very, like, different kind of racism and a potentially less violent kind mm. of racism than the racism that I experience as a black woman. But, like, we, we like, discuss that and 
like are like open about it and it's it's important for me to understand like race issues for him in the same way that it's important for him to understand race issues for me so Mm -hmm. I think that a way that you can if like let me just give you some advice about dating a bi person you know what no this is a real thing that I wondered about so I'm really happy that we're having this conversation I think that that's another way to think about it is instead of thinking about like how maybe she can't understand what you go through or that like she yeah instead of thinking about it that way or thinking about like oh well our experiences of our queerness are so different instead say like yeah our experiences of our queerness are different but like she might it's it still might suck for her in some ways and like why don't we talk about that and like yeah. I want to understand I want I want to understand her queerness in the same way that I want her to understand my queerness I want to know her stories the same way that I want her to know mine mm-hmm. you know so I think that that might be a, a way that you can and it's a way it. to like start a dialogue yeah totally and you get so much closer experience yeah and you get so much closer that way too i mean i i feel like it's definitely with race it's a little different because you also have to be really careful that you're not like exoticizing your partner and that's something that I, Mm. i try to keep like that i try to be serious about when i'm trying to like get a handle on my boyfriend's culture um but but like i think that i think that like understanding you know, relationships are about intimacy and, mm-hmm. and understanding people's experiences are another way to build intimacy. So, like, you can go for that. So talk about it. Yeah. And be honest about how you feel. <laughs> right? I mean, if you're at that level. I mean, you know, you know, like, that builds over time. But yeah. that's a good thing. And that's something that, you know, sometimes intimacy, like, we think about intimacy as, like, a lot of people do, as, like, sexual, right? But there can be other levels of intimacy, like, Opening up and being vulnerable I mean, to me is like a really, really big part about it, of of intimacy. That, act, to be honest, is like the most challenging part of intimacy for me. Opening up to my partner is that. That's yeah. What it is. yeah, I mean, I get that. I feel really strongly about intimacy encompassing a lot more than that because I mean, the the guy that I'm dating now, we were best friends for like six years before we started dating and we were extremely intimate as Mm. friends and so for a long because I was you know dating this other guy that I've been with since high school and I met my best friend in high school too and so um we spent a lot of time trying to like navigate like where the line was between like a really intimate friendship and like a relationship I think of all that all the time it's rough so what okay it's it's different for everybody well could you give us some insight on what you decided or what you figured out? I mean, there isn't there isn't like a hard line. Especially, I think it was a lot easier for me to circumscribe because I was in a relationship. Mm-hmm. So it was easy for me to say, like, I'm in a relationship, so I can't go this far with you. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but does, does it feel very similar? It feels really similar. And I had another friend that I was really close with that also edged into the same territory. And that was really funny because at the time, I identified as straight and he was gay. And so it was hmm. like we... And the, my boyfriend at the time, we were long distance. We were at different colleges, and I was with my like this guy who was gay all the time. So it was this weird situation where it was like it was pretty much identical to being in a relationship, except there was no sex, and that was really weird. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have been there. This is yeah. why I'm like shaking my head like crazy. This is so interesting. Yeah, yeah and I mean, and, and I it's think challenging. It, well, I think also that like people already expect that if you're two straight people of the opposite sex that you're going to want to, like, bump uglies at some point. <laughs> bump uglies. Bump uglies. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, 
And so, like, that was also something that we were fighting against, too, of being like, no, we can just be friends. Like, no, we're just friends. And, like, with, and then, obviously, when I had this intimate friendship with this gay guy, it was easier because he was gay. So, like, there was never, like, that was never a thing that we had to worry about. Um, But, like, yeah, it's really, it's really hard. But I think for me, because I've experienced these two really intimate friendships as well, and while being in a a relationship at the same time, um, for me, it's really important to, like, recognize, like, the intimacy in your life and not try to, like, run away from it Mm. and to, um, to, like, to enjoy it and to understand that, like, all these fucking narratives about, like, how relationships are supposed to work, much like all the narratives about how life is supposed to work, are pretty much bullshit. And you just need to figure out, like, your own shit. And sometimes that means, like, some really weird friendships. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes that means, like, a confusing job trajectory. Like, sometimes that means you graduate college and don't know what the fuck you're going to do. That's like, right. Like, all of these things, like, I mean... Like, real life is not a fucking teen movie. Like, there's like there's not happily ever after. You just keep living. So, like, figure it out as you go. And, like, don't you don't have to operate by other people's expectations. And I think that that's kind of, like, that's, that's really important to queerness, too. Mm-hmm. Like, the way that I used to talk about my friendships is that, like, they were, like, queer intimacies because they were outside of, like, the range of, like, what we're taught to understand as intimacies. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, like, understand that, like, Life is, in the sense that queerness is about it, or in the sense that queerness is often defined as, like, against the status quo, like, life can be pretty queer. And you need to, like, figure that out the sooner the better. Because <laughs> it'll make it a lot easier for you to just do what you need to do. Just accept it. Life is queer. <laughs> so get on, get on board. <laughs> well, the last thing I want to ask you before we go is... What advice do you have for someone who is interested in maybe creating a zine because they have something to say Mm -hmm. and just getting started with it? Set a deadline. (laughs) Wow, that was a quick response. I mean, that was that was the way that that's the way that I was. That's why I was able to accomplish the first issue of the zine as fast as I did because Mm. it was like I want it to be almost exactly a year when this happens so everything has to like I have to stay on top of this all the way through for this whole two months or like it's not gonna happen I think that it's really easy to come up with great ideas and really hard to like stay on yourself to execute them and like setting a deadline and coming up with a timeline to reach that deadline is like the best way to like actually do all the things that you say you want to do so set a deadline and get shit done Set a deadline and make a timeline and just follow the timeline. It can be a loose timeline, but it really helps. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I lied. I said I had one last question, but I have two. Is there a quote that you really like or that motivates you? Oh, um, well, for the zine, there's um, there's something that I read. Um, I feel like there's, like, a different quote that would be useful, but I can't think of what it is right now, so I'll just talk about this one that helps me with the zine. Um, they're in New York Magazine, they talked about um, how, like, a bunch of famous people got their starts a few issues ago, and um, there was a short thing about ta Coates, mm. and he said that, like, the way that he got started was... Um, like, he started writing for the Baltimore Sun or something like that, and he, like, had no idea what he was doing, and he was kind of making it up as he went along, which has definitely been my experience with the zine. And I think I have to... I'll try to find the quote for you and, like, send you a link and, like, give you the exact text, but basically what it was, like, the people 
that succeed are the ones that keep asking questions. Mm. So. So asking questions is free. (laughs) True. Right? So, like. And I think that that's definitely also, I mean, like, the reason I feel like a large part of why I was able to make the zine happen, because so much of it was, like, talking to strangers. And with the, with the new issue, too, that you can read about if you go on the website that I'll give Julia the link to, um, I had to cold email a lot of strangers and get them to talk to me. And that, like, I have to do that for my job every day. Like, mm-hmm. my job is to email people that I don't know and ask them for things. And you would be surprised, like, when I did the – when I when I sent out the emails for the new issue of the zine, like, three people got back to me within, like, three days. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, don't be afraid to ask questions and ask for things. Just do it politely, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because the worst thing that they're going to say is no, and then you move on to the next exactly, one. Exactly, exactly. And remember that no just means next. It doesn't mean stop. <laughs> you know? So keep that in mind. So, Maya, what is your alter ego career? Like, if you could be anything else, what, what would you what would you be in your alter ego um, world? Uh, either a graphic designer, because I was trying to do that for a while until I started trying to, like, focus more on, like, activism and the kind of stuff that I already, like, am pretty well trained in doing. So, like, graphic designer would be my first answer. And I, like, I've taken classes in it. I've been doing it for years. And the, the I designed the zine myself. So and that, it's so we're gonna take a picture with it. It's awesome. It looks it looks pretty professional. Like I'm not gonna lie. Um, <laughs> She's but, being polite and modest, but it looks awesome. Yes. So that or um, a writer, like a like a journalist, but Ooh. like I'm like trying to make money. I know. And like that's not the way to do it. And like PR, I'm not making a ton of money, but like I'm making enough that I'm like comfortable. Like. I don't have to cook all the time. Sometimes yeah. I can eat out now, you know? And, like, if I was writing, that would probably not really be the case. Yeah. So, like, doing PR, doing the zine on the side, making myself happy. Mm-hmm. That's it. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I mean, there's so much juice in this podcast. I'm so hyped <laughs> about it. And um, we'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, be authentic and say what you need to say. It's scary at first, but it can be super, super rewarding. Cool. Cool. Bye. Bye.